Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, February 9th. We'll have a Black History Month conversation now about a fundamental fact of persistent inequality that should probably be central to all public policy. It's the racial wealth and income gap. Here are some stats from the Federal Reserve Board. You can find these easily online at various websites associated with the Fed. And I'm going to use pre-pandemic stats. Let's say the pandemic has made things even worse, but if we assume some of the effects of the pandemic are temporary and will fade, here are some stats from the Federal Reserve Board from 2019. The median annual income for white families, $70,000 a year, and I'm rounding. The average income for black families, median income, $40,000 a year. This many decades after the Maine Civil Rights Act were passed, that's not okay, right? Something's not working. That was supposed to work better. And if you think a $70,000 to $40,000 a year ratio for income is bad, Don't drive off the road. Here come the stats for wealth. The overall number is 9 to 1, the ratio of family wealth. Around $20,000 in assets for black families, close to $180,000 for white families. 9 to 1, obviously not okay and something that public policy should address. And concerningly, if you look by generation, It's getting worse, not better. Among Americans born during World War II or before, the wealth gap ratio is about 4 to 1. For baby boomers, it's around 7 to 1. And for millennials, white families' median wealth is 19 times higher than for black families. And again, these are all stats being cited by the Federal Reserve Board. The Fed cites four main historical reasons as underpinnings. That run back to slavery days, of course, but also since then, unequal ownership of land, access to housing, access to education, and access to credit. So what's a country that supposedly prides itself on progress toward equality all the time to do? Let's talk about some options with Kyle Moore. He's an economist with the progressive think tank, the Economic Policy Institute. He's specifically with the Institute's program on race, ethnicity, and the economy. Kyle, thanks a lot for coming on. We really appreciate it. Welcome to WNYC. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Kyle, can I ask you first if you basically agree with the Federal Reserve Board's four big historical underpinnings contributing to wealth inequality. I know we could do a whole show on each, obviously, but ownership of land, access to housing, access to education, and access to credit? I think that's right. I think those four domains are really places where uh, throughout our history, Black folks have been denied access to opportunity to participate. Um, I think housing has, you know, it really sticks out in my mind as something that was a huge uh, area of growth of wealth for white families uh, throughout the 20th century, right? Um, we basically, through policy, built a white middle class of homeowners uh, and and wealth holders. Um, and that just hasn't been done for Black folks uh, in the United States. 
uh, in the same way. And, um, you know, since slavery, uh, folks have been uh, not only being used as capital, right? That was slavery, right? Black folks were being used explicitly as capital to build wealth. But after that, we're just denied access to many of the uh, avenues by which wealth would be grown in the first place. And that's never really been addressed. So it's not a surprise that um, black folks are lacking in these areas and are currently uh, wealth poor in comparison to their white counterparts. Can you talk a little bit more of the history of housing exclusion in this respect? Um, We've talked about this on the show before, and some people in our audience know it very well, but a lot of people don't. So what are some of those government policies that you referred to that helped white families in the United States build wealth through home ownership that didn't help black families? Sure. It was really uh, access to mortgages, right? The Federal Housing Authority um, in the 30s and 40s, um, you know, created these programs that really allowed uh, white families to get access to mortgages um, in particular neighborhoods that have appreciated in value over time. And uh, black folks were not allowed to take advantage of those through um, programs that or policies that folks know about these days called redlining. Um, and even when those policies were not racially explicit as they, you know, had been, you know, there were, of course, things like racial covenants that explicitly said that folks couldn't sell homes mm-hmm. to black uh, homeowners. But even when it wasn't racially explicit, um, redlining um, was carried out in such ways that denied mortgages being uh, issued to folks living in certain neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods were, of course, uh, majority black neighborhoods. Um, and you had, you know, instances like Levittown where uh, folks were um, or white folks were granted access to uh, homes in those neighborhoods that were, you know, middle class homes that have appreciated in value quite a bit um, since the um, since the time they were issued. I think, you know, Richard Rothstein's uh, work has really covered that well and just show, you know, how we, again, as I said, just built a white middle class of homeowners and wealth holders. Um, and that is the way that we build wealth in the United States, right? Uh, through policy in these ways. Um, yeah, and, and you know, I think the other area where, uh, you know, black folks haven't been able to really build wealth in the same ways is through, um, through employment, um, consistent employment, consistent employment with benefits and access to retirement benefits. Um, all these areas are lacking uh, for black folks. And um, yeah, it's it's a shame because wealth is extremely important. I'm sure we'll talk about this some as well, but like it's a problem that there's a racial wealth gap. The reason it matters isn't just for, you know, out of a concern for wanting things to be equitable or just like equal. Um, we live in a country where wealth is necessary um, for a lot of flourishing in ways that it may not be in other places, right? We don't have free access to healthcare. Uh, we don't have free access to education. Um, it is such that without wealth, you really don't have the agency um, to, um, you have the, you don't have the agency, you don't have the protection um, that we might have had we had a stronger safe, social safety net in this country. Um, yeah. So it, it really matters. Are the stats that I gave there by generation in the intro consistent with your understanding? Is the racial wealth gap actually getting worse from the pre-boomers to the boomers to the millennials? I can see that. I mean, it's consistent with what I've seen. Just thinking about the fact that millennials, um, you know, the housing market is increasingly difficult to get into. Um, 
And, you know, we've seen phenomena where uh, corporations are purchasing homes um, at a large rate. Uh, you know, folks will, folks will remember, you know, during the pandemic, how um, how difficult it was. Uh, you, have, you have to think like this is this is the time in which the millennial generation would be moving into homes. Uh, but we saw we, there's very obviously a housing shortage um, and that housing shortage is impacting the extent to which folks can get access to homes. And of course, the families who are going to be least able to do that are those without, you know, accumulated generational wealth such that a parent can help with the down payment in purchasing a home, especially when it was getting to a point where folks were coming with large cash offers to be able to get in. Right. Um, black families are just not in the position. Again, we talked about that nine to one wealth gap at the beginning. Right. Black folks are just not in the position to be able to draw on their some accumulated amount of wealth to pass on to the next generation to allow them to get a down payment to continue to build wealth. Right. And that's why, you know, wealth is cumulative across generations. So it, it makes sense that the way the racial wealth gap would continue to increase without some direct policy intervention to do something about it. Right. If we just allow this to continue, like, you know, wealth builds on wealth. And if you don't have it, um, you won't be able to build it. And we'll get into some of your specific policy recommendations as we go. Listeners, if you're just joining us, this is Black History Month segment on the persistence and really the increase over generations now uh, of the racial wealth gap in the United States and what to do about it with Kyle Moore, an economist with the progressive think tank, the Economic Policy Institute. Our lines are full, uh, are full with people who want to either tell some family stories or ask you some questions. So let's take a phone call right now. Jason in Beacon, you're on WNYC. Hi, Jason. Thanks a lot for calling in. Hi there. Thanks for having me. I'll try to be brief. Uh, I grew up in a place where I was a one black family, uh, with lots of white people. I went to college. I was one of the few people. I'm 47 years old. I was one of the few people who, the second person in my entire family who went to college. And I've grown up watching, and I told the screener, at pivotal moments in life, you know, when you get ready to go to college, when you're finished with college, uh, when you get married, when you uh, want to buy a first house. All of my friends who I know from college, all of my, you know, well-to-do, and I hate to say it, but my white friends, you know, they face these moments without any stress or far less. And so basically, you know, someone was there to help them, you know, to get, put a down payment on a house, to pay for getting married, to go to college. You know, I, I finished my student loans two years ago and graduated in 2000. And I guess all I do you know, want to say in short is that, you know, if, if you really look and see all of the, the black people don't have that much to look forward to. And you see it on people's faces when they're in the subway, when they're at their, you know, retail jobs that don't pay enough money just to get by. And I think that something like a tax credit or something about homeownership is the only way that it's going to ever be equal. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Jason, thank you very much. I read an article by you preparing for this in which you wrote, we must disabuse ourselves of the idea that the way to fix racial economic disparities in this country is to fix black people, as you put it, to train them more, to get more of them into college, things like that. But let me ask you to elaborate 
on that because a lot of people might think, well, those don't equate to racism. It's not saying black people are inferior in any way to say helping more people get college degrees at equal rates to whites and otherwise trained for prosperous careers. Those might be ways of correcting for structural inequality. So so what's missing from the way that I just described that, that you phrase it as um, we shouldn't focus on fixing black people? Right. Um, again, I am all for education. I think education is great. It improves folks' lives at an individual level. Um, for sure. I think what's important is is to understand just how racial disparities emerge, right? Um, of course, everyone's lives can be improved by more education, more access to training, things like that. It's just not going to solve this particular problem, right? Because this particular problem comes from a lack of, um, you know, access to opportunity to build wealth. For example, if you're talking about the racial wealth gap, um, it, ha- it, it comes from experiences of discrimination in the labor market, um, it's not as if black folks have not even some would argue over indexed on education, right? Like black folks do pursue education. Um, and even when they do do so, we can see that, you know, black folks and white folks with equal education still have disparate outcomes in terms of wealth, in terms of income, in terms of access to, um, you know, high prestige jobs. So it's, it's, it's simply that the evidence has shown us that pursuing these individual individualistic, um, approaches to causing Closing, closing these group gaps just hasn't done so over time. Not by so, itself, but you would want an equal, let's say, college degree rate across racial lines, wouldn't you, as a core goal? Sure. I would I would love for everyone to have equal access to education at a high quality. I think that's a great thing to do. It's just not going to close the racial wealth gap, right? So mm-hmm. that's, that's where I try to draw distinctions. Like, what's going to close racial... Like, things that are good for everyone are also going to be good for black folks and vice versa. Like, well, actually, things that are good for black folks are probably going to be good for the entire economy. Um, That's a separate question for whether or not we're going to close gaps. If we want equity versus just improving conditions for folks, Mm -hmm. there are plenty of things we can do to improve conditions, and we should do those things. But if our goal is equity, we need to take a more proactive approach. I, I, I want to run right ahead to the kinds of solutions that you discuss in your writing that might be more effective than what's been done in the past for closing the racial wealth and income gap. You mentioned, for example, labor union rights, a $15 minimum wage, at least nationally, guaranteed health care for all, a federal jobs guarantee, asset building programs like baby bonds, and you write that a direct reparations program may be necessary to even out assets more. So let's go through some of those. On labor union rights, your article mentions one piece of legislation by name that President Biden also mentioned in his State of the Union address this week, the PRO Act. Want to talk briefly about how much you think that would matter? Yeah, I think I think the PRO Act is something that makes sense for for all workers. Right. It's going to make it uh, make it easier for workers to come unionized at their jobs. Right. And I think. being able to have representation in the workplace um, is extremely important uh, on a number of fronts, um, not only just financially speaking, right, in terms of being able to get access to the benefits you need and a, and a decent wage, a decent salary, decent pay trajectories, things like that, but also just having a voice in the workplace to talk about the conditions of your work. That's the thing that, you know, I've seen in my research that Black folks on the job, particularly older Black folks, often aren't in positions to be able to say, 
the conditions of this work are becoming onerous for me. I need to, you know, downshift. I need to do a little bit less. These movements are hurting my body, things like that. And I think um, having access to representation in the workplace through a union uh, gives you that uh, that access, gives you that latitude to be able to speak out and, um, you know, talk about the conditions of your work. So that's going to improve a lot of things for a lot of workers, black workers uh, in particular, because they're exposed to uh, worse working conditions. How about a federal jobs guarantee? That's that's a Green New Deal item, right? It is, I think it is a part of the Green New Deal. Um, yeah, federal job guarantee will eliminate the problem of unemployment, right? And I think black folks uh, have experienced unemployment, continue to experience unemployment at a higher rate than white folks. It's almost consistently um, two to one uh, black unemployment rate to white unemployment rate, um, whether you're in a recession or not in a recession. Um, and I think it's important to for folks to understand this, that like a lot of people hear that and they think, oh, black folks just don't want to work. They're lazy. Um, but this is, that just kind of relies on a, a misunderstanding of what the unemployment rate is. Like everyone who's kind of under, under the unemployment rate is indeed looking for work. Right. And so it's the fact that when black folks are looking for work, they are just simply um, much less likely to be hired for that work uh, due to, you know, experiences with discrimination. And so. Um, you know, if you have a federal job guarantee that eliminates that problem, it eliminates um, the mental health stress that goes along with unemployment. Uh, it allows folks to have access to jobs with if it's again, if it's a federal job guarantee, those jobs come with certain standards. Right. It improves the uh, the labor conditions at the floor of the labor market, which will put pressure on other firms to improve their conditions as well. So it makes things again. These are all sorts of policies that are like universally good. Um, but would disproportionately benefit uh, black folks. In our last minute, Kyle, mm -hmm. do you see any political possibility um, for doing any of the things we've just been discussing in this last stretch of the show um, to really meaningfully close <clears throat> the racial wealth and income gap? Uh, I mean, you know, we don't even hear Democrats talk about these things all that much, although although some. Right. I think the strength that we have right now is that the facts are there. Um, the plans exist. Um, and at least post-2020, there was a lot of energy and interest in exploring what those are, right? Um, I'm encouraged by uh, what we're seeing in California, where they have a reparations task force, and they're, you know, um, seriously considering what it would take, right? Uh, seriously investigating what a reparations plan would look like for that state. Uh, there are cities, Evanston, Illinois, St. Paul, Minnesota, Providence, Rhode Island, that are all, you know, working on creating and implementing programs uh, that are under the auspices of reparations, right? These are not federal plans. I think if we're going to close the racial wealth gap, it has to be a federal plan, right? That being said, there are things happening at the sub-federal level that are interesting and encouraging to me. And as long as those plans, you know, follow some guidelines that make sense, right, as long as they continue to acknowledge and uh, continue, I mean, excuse me, include an apology and, and acknowledgement of the harm done, as long as they, you know, are about material redress and not simply symbolic, you know, actions, mm -hmm. as long as they're specific, right. as long as they, um, you know, don't try to subvert the federal government and, or try to absolve the federal government of responsibility. Yeah. 
long as they commit to the structural change, right, and have a commitment to ongoing work, right, I think those plans can be useful that are happening, happening at the federal level. So that's a useful we're, thing. I'm excited we're about gonna, We're going to follow up on this show and look at what California is doing in that respect and other localities. And I want to thank our guest for this conversation, Kyle Moore, an economist with the think tank, the Economic Policy Institute. Kyle, this has been really uh, informative. We could have gone on all afternoon with, with calls. There were so many we people wanting to tell their personal stories and talk about policy. Uh, so let's follow up sometime in addition to the other segments that we're planning on this. Thanks very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. I would love to be back. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.